Psalm 135. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord does, sorry, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. He it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast, who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people Israel. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion. He who dwells in Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Well, if, uh, if you've been a Christian for a while, maybe Psalm 135, 135 feels a little familiar. And that's because this psalm is a compilation song. So as one commentator points out in this psalm, every verse either echoes, quotes, or is quoted by some other part of Scripture. Psalm 135 is somewhat of a greatest hits playlist. And the imperative or the command of this psalm is hard to miss. Verse one, praise the Lord, praise the name of the Lord, give praise, O servants of the Lord. Verse three, praise the Lord, for the Lord is good, sing to his name. Verse 19, bless the Lord, bless the Lord. Verse 20, bless the Lord, bless the Lord. Verse 21, blessed be the Lord, praise the Lord. This is a psalm of praise, inviting us to join in, to praise the Lord. In fact, that, that phrase, praise the Lord, is the Hebrew word, hallelujah. And it bookends this psalm. It's right there in verse 1, and it's at the end in verse 21. And one theologian suggests that this is a way of saying that all of life should be filled with the praise of God. But before we go any further, it's worth asking why does God want us to praise him? 
It's a peculiar request, isn't it? I mean, maybe this is something that you find strange about God. If God is so great, why does he care so much about people praising him? So C.S. Lewis once found this to be a major stumbling block. So he wrote this. When I first began to draw near to belief in God, and even for some time after it had been given to me, I found a stumbling block in the demand so clamorously made by all religious people that we should praise God. Still more in the suggestion that God himself demanded it. We all despise the man who demands continued assurance of his own virtue, intelligence, or delightfulness. We despise still more the crowd of people around every dictator, every millionaire, every celebrity who gratify that demand. Thus a picture at once ludicrous and horrible, both of God and of his worshippers threatened to appear in my mind. The Psalms were especially troublesome in this way. Praise the Lord. Oh, praise the Lord with me. Praise him. It was hideously like saying, what I most want is to be told that I am good and great. Maybe you resonate with Lewis's words here. You know, so like if I, if I finished this sermon and like dropped the mic and I like expected you to all applaud me, I'm assuming that you would think less of me and rightfully so because we know that like people that demand praise are kind of insecure. They're kind of weak. They clearly lack something that you need to fill up. However, as we're gonna see in a moment, this isn't the case with God because God is infinitely powerful, supremely beautiful and wholly self-sufficient. So when God seeks praise, he must be seeking it for different reasons than we do. So God doesn't need us to praise him because God needs nothing outside himself. So our praise doesn't add anything to God. It doesn't, it doesn't like boost his self-esteem. It doesn't, doesn't give him an increase in confidence. In other words, the, the praise that God demands cannot be for God's benefit. So why does God call us to praise him then? Well, let's return to C.S. Lewis one more time. He says this, but the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I'd never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, hmm. even sometimes politicians or scholars. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmists in telling everyone to praise God are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. I think 
we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. The worthier the object, the more intense this delight would be. The Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we, the, we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. I think that's really insightful. God doesn't command us to praise him because he needs our praise. No, the praise is for our benefit, not his. We naturally praise what we find praiseworthy. And the praise adds to and completes our enjoyment of it. So let me illustrate this for you. So let me, here's what an average Sunday afternoon looks like in the Jones house. So after lunch, it's quiet time, okay? Ariella goes upstairs to her room. Isaiah takes a nap. Heidi does some grading or she prepares some lessons for her Spanish classes. And then I watch real football, okay? So that's quiet time in the Jones house, except it's not all that quiet. Because when I'm watching football and someone scores a goal, which happens more often than you guys think, <laughs> something in me erupts. Like I jump out of my seat, I, I punch the air, I clap. I'm like, yes, get in, what a goal. And it's not unusual for me to wake up a sleeping child when I do that, I, but I can't help it. I naturally just praise what I enjoy. Sometimes I even invite my family to, to re-watch the goal and join in the chorus of praise. Now my praise adds nothing to that goal, but it enhances and it completes my enjoyment of the goal. This is why we verbally praise a delicious meal or a beautiful view or a riveting story or a powerful song. We can't help it. And our praise doesn't add anything to those things, but it adds to our enjoyment of those things. So back to Psalm 135. In calling us to praise the Lord, what this song is doing is it's actually inviting us to enjoy God to delight in him, to find pleasure and satisfaction in God. So that's why verse three says, sing to his name for it, i.e. praising God is pleasant, it's delightful. So if praising God, if singing to his name is drudgery to you, then it might actually mean that you don't know God. Because when we truly see who God is, when we see how glorious he is, we can't help but respond in joyful praise. That's why we have songs in our services, because they add to and complete our enjoyment of God. So what about God is praiseworthy? Well, in the rest of Psalm 135, the psalmist highlights three things. He could highlight an infinite amount of things, but he chooses three things that showcase the goodness and praiseworthiness of God. The first one is found in verse four, God's electing love, God's electing love. 
So in verse 4, we're given the first reason to praise God. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. In the original Hebrew language here, the words Jacob and Israel are emphatic. In other words, imagine these names are highlighted and underlined in your Bible. Now, if you were, if you were here when we studied the book of, Ex, of, of Genesis, you, you might remember that Jacob, he wasn't a really great guy. Yet, God chose him. And when did he choose him? Well, he chose Jacob in the womb. He set his love on Jacob before he could do good or evil. Jacob eventually changed, had his name changed to Israel. And from Jacob came a people, the nation of Israel. And they weren't any better than Jacob. They were stubborn, forgetful, and rebellious. They were small, weak, and unimportant. Yet God chose them. These insignificant sinners became God's treasured possession. How did that happen? Sheer grace. Listen to what God says to Israel in Deuteronomy. He tells them, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Why did he do that? Well, it was not because you were more in number than any of the people that the Lord had set his that the Lord set his love on you or cho and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. God chose, he elected the least likely of people. He set his love on Jacob and Israel, not because they were impressive. In fact, they were unimpressive. So why did God choose them? Sheer grace. And friends, the same is true for you and me. So listen again to how Paul puts it in Ephesians. We read this earlier in our service. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And then what does he say? To the praise of his glorious grace with which he's blessed us in the beloved. If, you're a, if you are in Christ this morning, if you've placed your trust in Jesus, if you've had your sins forgiven through his death on the cross, that's all because God chose you before the foundation of the world. It's not because you're morally superior to anyone else. It's not because you're more enlightened or intelligent or humble. It's because God set his electing love on you before you were even born. Now, this is very jarring to us at first. Initially, God's electing love doesn't seem all that praiseworthy. And I think that's because it goes against human convention. It goes against all of our instincts because it's just not how the world works, is it? We expect people to earn what they get. We expect people to work hard and put the effort in. We want those who prosper in life to deserve it, or at least on some level. 
And so we just expect God to work that way too. We expect him to choose people who deserve it. But God's electing love is countercultural. His sovereign grace triumphs over human convention. Here's what this means practically. It means that if you're a Christian this morning, God doesn't love you because you were born into a Christian family. He doesn't love you because you attend church. He doesn't love you because you read your Bible and you pray. He doesn't love you because you try really hard to obey him and be a good person. He doesn't love you for having more intelligence or humility or spiritual insight than others. He doesn't even love you because you love him or you believe in him. There's actually nothing lovable in you that compels God to love you. He loves you because he loves you. From eternity past, before you did anything good or bad, he set his love on you. He chose you for himself. He elected you out of sheer grace to be his treasured possession. And that means that you can never lose his love. God will never grow tired of you. He'll never disown you. He'll never revoke his election of you. He won't change his mind one day. Despite all of your sins and stubbornness, all of your failures and foibles, you can't lose God's electing love. Why? Because you never earned it in the first place. It also means that you can now stop trying to earn God's love because God doesn't love you more or less dependent on your religious performance. So you can gladly get off that exhausting treadmill. He doesn't love you more on those days when you read your Bible or devote time to prayer or write a generous check or serve at church or flee temptation. His love for you is constant. It's eternal. It's infinite. And this should cause you to praise God, to sing with joy, to delight in his electing love. The second thing that showcases the praiseworthiness of God is found in verses 5 to 14. And it's this, God's sovereign power. God's sovereign power. So in verse 5, the psalmist says, For I know that the Lord is great. And then he highlights two areas of God's greatness. In verses six to seven, we see, the sovereign, we see his sovereign power in creation. And in verses eight to 14, we see a sovereign power in salvation. So let's start with God's sovereign power in creation. Verses six to seven, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from its storehouses. Here we see God's absolute sovereignty over creation. He literally does anything he pleases. There is no realm of creation, heaven, earth, land, sea, that's beyond his control. If you look out the window and you see clouds, it's because God put them there. He's the one who causes the rain. He's the one who summons the wind. Lightning strikes at his command. In the words of Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So when we hear a thunderclap or feel the impact of a wave 
or catch a glorious sunset, we get a glimpse of God's sovereign power. And this should cause us to praise him. I think the most like, beautiful example I ever saw of this was in my daughter. So she must have been about three years old. We were at Cape Charles Beach and it was sunset and the sky was on fire. Reds, oranges, yellows, purples, it was breathtaking. And as my daughter was running around, splashing in the water in a world of her own, she suddenly stopped and she looked up at the sky and she noticed the beauty of creation. And she just said, oh, thank you, Jesus. Just said it to herself. And it was just one of those moments where like a child understood more about the universe than a scholar. She saw God's sovereignty in creation and just something in her burst forth in this spontaneous praise to the, for the creator. Now, most modern Western people don't respond to creation like this. We don't naturally see God's sovereign power in creation, but that's, that hasn't always been the case. So the Canadian philosopher, Charles Taylor, he wrote that until quite recently, people had a very different view of the universe. So he said that for most of human history, people lived in something he called an enchanted world. Now, when, when Taylor uses the word enchanted here, he doesn't mean like fairies and goblins and Disney princesses. He means that everyone believed in the reality of supernatural forces, and they just took it for granted that there were these unseen spiritual realities behind the physical, visible world. So, for example, when they, when they saw a thunderstorm or experienced the drought or encountered a flood, they considered those things to be an act of God. Not necessarily the God of the Bible, but some, some sort of deity. But Taylor argues that there's been a shift, a radical shift in Western society. We now live in something Taylor calls a disenchanted world. We, as a culture, we don't see the spiritual realities behind the physical universe. Again, you, in a way, you don't need me to tell you this. You know it instinctively, don't you? So think about the crazy cold weather we had over Christmas that some of us are still trying to thaw, thaw out from. You know, it was so cold, wasn't it? Because of the advances in science, our default is to think merely of physical causes. So meteorologists tell us that it was caused by a polar vortex. That's the natural explanation. Most people don't think that God was behind that storm. The Weather Channel didn't mention anything about supernatural causes. But the psalmist is trying to help us to see that ultimately, God was the primary cause. He was the sovereign, it was his sovereign power that sent the Arctic blast. We need to see the spiritual reality behind the universe. But this is very countercultural. So this, it really hit home to me not, not long ago. So my wife Heidi, she, was, she, she told me about an interview that she was listening to on NPR where they were talking about music. And they, the, the, the people on it were talking about how amazing and beautiful music was. And one of the guys on it was like, isn't it amazing that atoms evolved and all of a sudden we have Johann Sebastian Bach? 
It's like, for this gentleman, the beauty of music was a mere natural phenomenon, a happy accident. Bach and Mozart just randomly happened, and we just randomly happened to enjoy them. And I just, when Heidi told me that, I couldn't help but think, wow, it, sometimes it, it takes more faith to be an atheist. Because creation testifies to God's sovereign power. The weather, the music, animals, flowers, mountains, oceans, none of it is random or meaningless. These things declare God's glory. They proclaim his handiwork. So when, when you see the power of God, in creation, when you see the beauty of God in creation, I think we're, not, we're meant to not just praise the creation. So don't just marvel at the sunset or admire the ocean waves or, or enjoy that piece of music. To, to cite C.S. Lewis again, trace the sunbeam to the sun. In other words, let the creation lead you to praise the creator, to delight in God. So that's God's sovereign power in creation. We also see God's sovereign power in salvation. So in verses eight to nine, the psalmist references the Exodus. He points back to the time when God saved his people from Egypt. We studied the book of Exodus not too long ago, didn't we? You might remember that. This was God's ultimate act of salvation in the Old Testament. In verses 10 to 12, he references kings and nations that God struck down. These enemies of God barred entrance into the promised land. They were too big and mighty for God's people, yet they weren't too big and mighty for God. So God defeated them. And then in verse 12, we see that he gave his people the promised land. Only God's sovereign power could have accomplished such a great salvation. In verse 13 there, the psalmist proclaims God's everlasting name and fame. The word renowned there might be better translated as remembrance. The idea is that God will remember his people. He will vindicate them, the psalmist says, and have compassion on them. Verse 14 there is actually a direct quote from Deuteronomy, chapter 32, verse 36. The context there is that God's people have gone astray. They are stuck in idolatry. They deserve judgment for their sin. However, God, in his compassion, promised to vindicate them. In other words, this salvation, this redemption, is wholly undeserved. It's by sheer grace that God saves his people. Time and time again in the Bible, God's salvation elicits praise from his people. And the truth is, we have a much greater salvation to look back on, don't we? Because we have Jesus Christ. And, God, and in Jesus Christ, God has struck down our greatest enemies through his perfect life, atoning death, and victorious resurrection. Jesus has conquered Satan's sin and death. In Jesus Christ, we've been called out of darkness into God's marvelous light. We've been born again to a living hope. We've been forgiven. We've been declared righteous. We've been adopted into God's family. We've been given the Holy Spirit, God himself living in us. We've been granted eternal life. We've been promised a glorious inheritance and so much more. And all of this 
should cause us to praise God for his glorious grace, to enjoy God, to delight in God. But we lose sight of this, don't we? Even as Christians, we lose sight of God's salvation. Maybe some of us have never, ever truly grasped how great God's salvation is. We live in a society that tells us that we're inherently good people. We're certainly not sinners who've rebelled against God. Therefore, why, why do we even need a savior? As the punk rock artist Dave Haas puts it, I don't need a savior if I don't believe in sin. Our deepest problems, we're told, are outside us. Even the bad things we do are often attributed to things like childhood trauma or chemical imbalances or difficult circumstances. Now, of course, there might even be an element of truth there. However, I think deep down we know that that's not the full story because we know that we're not the people that we should be. We know that we fall short of our own moral standards. We might point the finger elsewhere, but any self-aware person knows that deep, deep down we're part of the problem. We have a mighty enemy, our own personal sin, and we need a savior with sovereign power to rescue us. We also live in a culture that largely suppresses the reality of death, don't we? So sometimes we tell ourselves that death is not really that bad. It's nothing to be scared of. It's just a natural part of life that we need to embrace. But I think usually we just ignore the topic altogether. So in his Pulitzer Prize winning book, The Denial of Death, psychologist Ernest Becker makes this exact point. He basically argues in it that death is such a, a horrible, scary reality that the only way we can cope is to just live in denial. So we refuse to think about it. We don't mention it in polite company. We distract ourselves. We, we work and plan and play as if we're immortal. And even in those times when death does hit closer to home, so if a loved one passes away or we get a health scare, many of us still find ways to live in denial of death. So we distract ourselves with TV or pleasure or work, or we try really hard to defeat death through exercise and dieting and medicine. Again, if we, if we can suppress the reality of death, we can convince ourselves that we don't actually need a resurrected savior. However, we can't suppress the truth forever. I wonder if you've ever had done that thing where you, you try and, you're in a swimming pool and you try and sit on top of a, on top of a ball. You, you try really hard to keep it underneath the water. And just when you think you've succeeded, it just forces its way up to the surface and, it, and then it pops out a couple of feet away. That's what happens when we try and suppress the truth about sin and death. We may think that we've succeeded, but reality always finds a way of forcing its way up to the surface. God's word is ultimate reality. When we open its pages, we see the truth about sin and death, about our sin and our death. And this would be terrible news if it wasn't for the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in Jesus Christ, God has revealed his sovereign power in salvation. Jesus died on the cross. He took the punishment for all of our sins. So that means we no longer have to live in guilt and shame. 
We no longer have to live in denial about our sin. We no longer have to prove to ourselves or to others or even to God that deep down we're really good people. No, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he had washed, has washed it white as snow. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. But Jesus didn't stay dead, did he? He rose from the grave in victory over death. And he promises everlasting life to all who trust in him. And that means we no longer have to live in fear. We no longer have to live in denial. We no longer have to live under the illusion that we're going to live forever. No, though life is but a fleeting breath, a sigh too brief to measure, my king has crushed the curse of death and I am his forever. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Oh, sing hallelujah. Join the chorus. Sing with the redeemed. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Christian, I wonder if just something in you wants to sing right now. I mean, wouldn't you like this sermon to end so that you can stand and praise the Lord? That's because this is good news. Praiseworthy news from a praiseworthy God. However, sadly, this sermon isn't finished because the psalmist has one more point. So we've seen God's electing love. We've seen his sovereign power, both in creation and salvation. And thirdly, let's see God's eminent superiority, God's eminent superiority. So the psalmist highlights a problem. God is worthy of our praise. However, people are prone to offer their praise to something else. We are prone to trust in, delight in, and worship things other than God. So we skipped over the end of verse five, where the psalmist declares that our Lord is above all gods. Then in verses 15 to 18, he delivers a devastating critique of idols. He calls them, in verse 15, the idols of the nations. These would have been the gods that Israel was tempted to praise instead of the true God. These idols, he says, are nothing but silver and gold, the work of human hands. There's something ironic about a man-made God because the creation is supposed to worship the creator. However, idol worship reverses this order. The created idol is worshiped by the human creator. It doesn't make sense, it's foolish. In verses 16 to 17, the psalmist exposes the utter foolishness of idols. He says there, they have mouths, but do not speak. They offer no divine revelation. They can't give counsel or wisdom. They, they can't provide any sort of personal relationship. He says they have eyes but do not see. They can't see our pain and suffering. They don't see all the evil and injustice in the world. He says they have ears but they don't hear. They can't hear the prayers of their worshippers. 
And then he says, nor is there any breath in their mouths. They're lifeless, powerless, useless. However, that doesn't mean they're harmless. Idols are incredibly deadly. Look at verse 18. We read there, those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. There's, there's an irony here. In one sense, idols are powerless. Yet in another sense, they have incredible power. Power to make us like them. There's a principle here. You become like what you worship. We actually see this in other parts of the Bible. Let me show you a couple of examples. In Isaiah 6, the Lord instructs Isaiah. He tells him, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Or consider Isaiah 42, 17 to 18. They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. Hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see. As an act of judgment, the people in Isaiah's day are made spiritually deaf and blind and dead. They basically become like the idols that they've been worshiping. Now, it's worth pausing a second to think about idolatry because I think when modern people think about idolatry, many of us picture primitive people bowing down before statues. However, biblically, idolatry is first and foremost a matter of the heart. So, for example, in Ezekiel 14, God says this, Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts. Martin Luther defined idolatry as anything other than God on which your heart relies and depends. He went on to say this, if your heart clings to something else and expects to receive from it more good and help than from God and does not run to God but flees from him when things go wrong, then you have another God, an idol. Tim Keller has a helpful definition of idolatry. He says, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. I mean, in other words, an idol can be anything, can't it? It can be family and children, money and possessions, career and achievements, reputation and social standing, work or rest, vacations or retirement. It can be a romantic relationship, the approval of others, talents and skills, comfort and security, your beauty or your brains, political or social causes. It can even be Christian ministry. Idolatry basically takes good things and it turns them into God things. Whenever we fix our heart onto something and think, if only I had that, then my life would have meaning. Then I'd have value and significance. Then I'd be secure and safe. 
then I'd be happy and satisfied. Then life would be, would be worth living. Well, that's an idol. That's a counterfeit God. You might not have a carved image of Buddha on your dashboard, but maybe your idol is your house or your phone or your bank balance. Maybe it's a fantasy or a dream you have, a consuming desire that, that just takes up all of your thoughts. John Calvin said that the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. So picture a conveyor belt full of counterfeit gods. Now, this isn't just an ancient problem, is it? Modern people, people like you and me, we create idols, God substitutes. And what do we do? Well, we worship them. We praise them. We sacrifice to them. We give them our time and energy and resources. Just think about the things that you're prone to live for. The things that you frequently daydream about. The things that you run to in times of need. The things that you sometimes trust in more than God. Maybe even to use the language of this psalm, the things that you're most likely to offer up praise to. Idols offer us a false gospel, don't they? They promise us life, satisfaction, peace, security, joy. But they never truly deliver on those promises, do they? So the satisfaction they give doesn't last. The peace they bring is fragile. The security they offer is an illusion. The joy they afford is superficial. Idols only really offer us disillusionment, despair, and ultimately destruction. The more we trust in them, the more we become like them. We become spiritually blind, deaf, and lifeless. Basically, what happens is idols dehumanize us. You've probably seen that in people. Maybe you've even seen it in yourself. I know I have. The more a person worships something, whether it's their wealth, their image, their possessions, their career, their politics, their pleasure, the less human they become, they become self-centered, callous, impatient, envious, deceitful, harsh. They even justify immoral behavior in order to get their idols. And they end up alone, miserable, and enslaved. This reality, I think, is perfectly captured by Tolkien with Smeagol or Gollum in Lord of the Rings. Because the ring is his idol. And the more he worships it, the less human he becomes. And that's exactly what happens to us. Yet, God is eminently superior to idols. Verse 5, the Lord is above all gods. Here is a God who speaks. He speaks creation into existence. He speaks to his people in his word. Here's a God who sees. He sees your pain and suffering. He sees the depression, the anxiety, the loneliness, the tears, the exhaustion, the injustice. Here's a God who hears. He's not indifferent to what you're going through. He hears your prayers, your cries, your groaning. And we know all this, don't we, because of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus is God's final and full revelation. God speaks loudest and clearest in Jesus. Jesus is also proof that God sees and hears because Jesus came to rescue us from our sin and misery. He took on human flesh. He knows what it's like to live in a fallen world. He's been tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. He sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. And unlike lifeless idols, Jesus is alive. Even death could not hold him. He conquered the grave and he offers life to all who trust in him. Here's the beautiful thing. We become like what we worship. So when we worship Jesus, we become like him. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The Spirit conforms us to the image of Christ. The more we, del we trust in, delight in, the more we give our praise to Jesus, the more we become like him. Whereas idols dehumanize us, Jesus rehumanizes us. He makes us into the people that God created us to be. The more we trust in Jesus, the more we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The more we love our neighbor as ourselves, We bear the fruits of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And ultimately, like Jesus, we're resurrected in glory. So here's the big question. Who are we going to worship? Who are we going to trust in and delight in? To whom will we offer up our praise? Will it be to the praiseworthy God who's revealed himself in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ? Or will it be to useless, lifeless, deadly idols? The theologian Greg Beale sums it up nicely. He says, what, what people revere, they resemble either for ruin or restoration. Idols will ruin us. Jesus will restore us. So let's turn from idols to serve the living God. And let's praise him for his electing love for undeserving sinners, for his sovereign power in both creation and salvation and his eminent superiority over all things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we praise you. Lord, you are praiseworthy. We praise you for your electing love for us. We are undeserving sinners, yet you have set your love on us before the foundation of the world. So we praise you. We praise you for your sovereign power in creation and in salvation. And we praise you, Lord, for your eminent superiority over all things of this world, over all the idols that we're tempted to trust in and delight in. And we praise you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.